Hello, friends, and welcome to Mattathias Reads the World, a crappy podcast, family podcast, inspired by the one and only James's crappy podcast, created by James Goldberg and Nicole Wilkes Goldberg. I am here tonight with Annalisa Lemon, um, the author of Portal Friends, um, and several other really excellent works of short Mormon fiction over the years in the Mormon Lit Blitz. Um, and we're here, of course, as part of the uh, 2020 Lit Blitz series um, to discuss her her work as a Mormon writer. So to start off with, what, how would you like to introduce yourselves, yourself to our listeners? Uh, hi, I'm Annalisa. I write mostly fantasy stories. I've been writing them for many, many years. I currently live in Seattle, Washington, and I've got three kids that keep me busy. And uh, not sure what else to say. Yeah, I, I think that goes for a start. You had something else you were just about to add? Uh, just something like, glad to be here. All right, wonderful. We are also glad to have you here. Uh, so you said for many years, what? how did you get your start writing fantasy fiction? Um, well, the first story I remember ever writing for fun was in fourth grade, and it was about a girl and her horse. And uh, my fourth grade teacher had me read it to the class. It was just one page, one notebook page, front and back, basically. Okay. But uh, ever since... And I've always been writing for fun, uh, a lot of fan fiction, and, and fantasy has just always been my first love for reading and writing. So that's why mo all but one of my Lit Blitz entries have a, a speculative element in them. Yeah. Yeah, and they're they're really wonderful. Um, so yeah, to, to give kind of a rundown, right, uh, the... Um, works that um, we've seen before from Annalisa include a story called Curulum Riders, um, kind of speculating on what is this weird animal mentioned briefly in the Book of Ether, the Curulum, and what's one thing we could imagine that working out as. Um, it's really wonderful, a lot of fun. Um, and... Uh, uh, one called Ishmael's Daughters that's a uh, fairly straightforward Book of Mormon um, fiction. Um, one of my all-time favorite kind of absurdist Mormon stories called Disability, Death, or Other Circumstance. Um, sort of imagining like uh, how would you like apply the family proclamation in like a Kafka short story. Um, the Gift of Tongues, um, and then this year's Portal Friends. Am I missing any? Uh, that looks like all five of mine that have made the finalist. All right, yeah, and they're all really wonderful. All of them are available at lit.mormonartist.net uh, for anyone who's curious, and we'll include some sort of link in the show notes as well. Um, but this year's uh, piece by Annalisa is Portal Friends. So um, let's get right to that. Without further ado, if you would read for us this story. Portal Friends by Annalisa Lemon. Emily pushed against the cool surface of her mother's full-length mirror. The surface remained solid as it had for months. It wasn't fair the portal to the magic wood was supposed to remain open until she turned 12 in December. But last year, President Nelson had announced that youth would graduate from primary on January 1st, not on their birthdays. Ever since her first beehive meeting, the portal had sealed shut. Sure, the other beehives were nice, but they weren't friends, not like those from the magic wood. The adventures she'd had with them made the real world dull in comparison. Then this morning, 
President Ballard had introduced the Children and Youth Program and the four areas for goal setting. For social growth, Mom had suggested she find someone to sit with at lunch, but Emily liked the example of serving others. And who better to serve than those who had assisted with her adventures in the magic wood? The thought wouldn't leave her mind. Was that revelation? Emily rested her forehead against the glass. Please, let me serve. The glass warmed and gave way. She fell through onto a dirt path strewn with red and yellow leaves. She stood, dusking, dusting off her pink dress. The trees of the magic wood stood bright with fall colors. Grinning, she raced down the path. I'm back! She ran straight to the small cabin of Ms. Crippen, the satyr. When Ms. Crippen opened the door, she wrapped Emily in her familiar grandmotherly hug. Oh dear, it's so good to see you again. Won't you come in and have some cocoa? Actually, I'm here to serve you, Emily smiled. Can I do your dishes or sweep the floor? Miss Crippen glanced back at her kitchen. The floor was spotless and only a single plate and cup sat by the sink. I suppose you could wash the dishes if you really want to. No problem. Emily skipped to the sink telling Ms. Crippen everything that had happened since the portal closed. She had to start over multiple times as news spread of her presence. The talking squirrels, the fairies, and the river nymph all wanted to see her. Emily ached from the constant smiling and the tight hugs. It was everything she had imagined while eating lunch alone at school. Emily could no longer see the door through the crowded kitchen, but she recognized the soft grumble of the next visitor instantly. Is Emily here? Emily dropped the cup into the now cold water and dried her hands on her dress. Mother Tanrika. The creatures parted as Mother Tanrika, the lioness, stepped into the kitchen. Her voice was soft with sadness. You are too old to be here. Emily pouted. I'm not even 12 yet, but you are no longer a child. Really? Primary decided whether or not she was a child? The mirror let me through. I told it to, because we never said goodbye. It wasn't because it liked her desire to serve. Emily glared at the wooden floor, blinking back tears. Why did growing up mean losing this place she loved? Come here, Mother Tenrika said gently. Emily trudged forward until she was in front of the lioness. Mother Tenrika reached out a paw and pulled her against her chest. It is time for you to make new friends and find new people to serve. Why can't I make new friends and keep my old ones? It always hurts to leave those we love behind, but those on earth need you more than we do. Take this. Mother Tenrika breathed on Emily's wrist. Green, brown, and gold cords appeared, braiding themselves into a bracelet. A silver heart charm tied itself to the middle. That you may remember our love and faith in you. Tears spilled over Emily's cheeks. She didn't want a bracelet, but Mother Tanrika wasn't going to give her what she wanted. She buried her face into Mother Tanrika's neck. When the sobs subsided, Mother Tanrika directed her to say goodbye to everyone and then escorted her back to the portal. She took one last look at the magic wood, then stepped through to home. Tears blurred her vision again. She ran to her room, throwing the children and youth booklet under her bed. So much for revelation. On Monday, Emily sulked in her chair in math class when Kamala sat down next to her, smiling in her hijab. I like your bracelet, Kamala said. Thanks. You didn't happen to get it from Mother Tanrika, did you? Emily sat up straight. She hadn't ever told anyone about Mother Tanrika or the portal. How did you know? Kamala held out her wrist, an identical braided cord bracelet wrapped around her wrist, but instead of a heart charm, she had a silver crescent moon. I always wanted to meet someone else who had found a portal. Emily's eyes widened. There were so many questions she wanted to ask, but the teacher was calling for attention. Want to have lunch together? Maybe they could become friends. Oh, I love that one so much.
Thank you. Yeah, there are so many wonderful things happening in this story. But I guess I have to start with the really obvious question, which is, uh, Narnia, what made you decide to do a Mormon Narnia story? I'd actually been wanting to do a Mormon portal fantasy story for a long time. And it was this, a year ago, I read a story that someone else had written that was very Narnia-esque. And it, it was called, um, This Is Not My Adventure by Carlo Yeager Rodriguez. And it w just clicked in me for how I could make a story work, that it wouldn't be about the actual fantasy world, it would be about the fact that she has to leave it. Yeah, and the boundary, right? It's about this boundary and what? how do we measure the boundary between childhood and adulthood or you know, adolescence, which is this weird middle phase? we decided mm -hmm. to make. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I love this story. I love the details of the portal. I love her friends in the portal. I love Mother Tanrika, the lioness, right? Who's your uh, answer to Aslan? Yep. Um, and I love this heroine who just is so eager to, to be back in a place where she's done so much good um, and made so many friends and is wrestling with this end to that journey. Um, yeah. Right. And she's 11, but 11-year-olds have, like, big feelings. We forget that yeah. sometimes. Um, after we've grown into other feelings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But with kids, like, it's not that kids have smaller feelings. It's that they have a smaller, like, range and world for their feelings to be triggered and created by. And so, like, little things at home are, like, um, you know, emotionally jubilant and cataclysmic in ways that, like, as, as we grow up, we kind of learn to, like, level things out most of the time. Yeah, um, kids don't have the same kind of perspective that adults do. Yeah. And they don't have the same tools that adults do to deal with these emotions as well. Yeah. 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 But yeah, I love this story. Um, and I love the end moment where she finds someone else who's been there. Yes, that um, was one of my favorite parts to write. Yeah, where she realizes that like this experience that she loved and that was so important to her, here's someone else who's been through it, but it's this really exciting discovery, right? Um, and then now, right, we, we've been worried about, like, okay, she lost all of these friends. How will she keep going? Oh, here, you know, she has another friend who's who has some way to understand that experience. Yeah. Um, but I, I love that it's a Muslim girl. Um, yeah, when, I, yeah. It was important to me that it would not be someone that was in the church because... Mm -hmm. I had some of my best friends in high school were those that were not members. Yeah. And there's so much good there. So I definitely wanted to have something. And also Narnia is very Christian. And I uh -huh. wanted to have the point that this world is open to all religions. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's one of the things I thought of at first, right? That like there is in Narnia fandom, there are some kind of uneasy moments around that. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, I love that you just made it so matter of fact. And I as well. I So I grew up in Columbus, Ohio, primarily. Um, 
and um, several of my best friends are Muslim. Um, Muslim kids I met during middle school and high school, and we've, you know, I've grown up, they've grown up, we're on doing different things now. But especially in high school, we had a level of um, mutual appreciation because we were the two categories of teenagers in the Midwest who don't drink mm. um, voluntarily. So, and you know, it's it's nice to have someone else around who people know not to invite to certain parties. Yeah. Um, but who you can invite to your parties and not worry what they'll bring. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, and then like lots of the, you know, expectations around dating, expectations around like spending a lot of time with family and family being a top priority. Um, it really was for me and is for me with my Muslim friends, like there is this, um, you know, other world that they know the rules to in a way that not all of my friends from school got. Hmm. Um, and it is this world of a certain type of religious community and of like really strongly knit uh, intergenerational family communities, right? Muslim immigrant families um, and Mormon families, right? There's there's more than a little resemblance. Yeah. Um, and so there were things that I would have to explain to most of my non-Mormon friends that I didn't really have to explain to my Muslim friends. I could mention it and then they'd be like, oh yeah, I get it. Right. When I'd be like, you know, I can't go to that. I've got a, I've got a church thing tonight. And they'd be like, oh yeah. Right. Like I've got stuff at the mosque. Um, or, you know, I'd say like, look, I, I'm, I'm fasting, right. I'll be fasting this Sunday. Uh, and they're like, oh yeah, I, I know about fasting. <laughs> um, and so we really, we found a lot of common ground that was this kind of shared other world outside of our classes that wasn't like totally shared, but where we had uh, a language that we could understand each other in. Yeah. Um, that lots of my classmates just didn't really get, right? With fasting or prayer or things like that, it was like, wait, what are, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I remember one of my uh, good Muslim friends in, in, at the end of junior high, he participated in like a Quran memorization contest for memorizing passages from the Quran. And I, I was just getting ready to start seminary and studying scripture mastery scriptures. And I was like, oh, yeah, we do the same thing. Hmm. Um, right? Like slightly different mechanics, but, you know, his mosque held Quranic passage memorization contests for youth because they wanted to get youth familiar with the scriptures, right? Yeah. Um, and, you know... I, I was starting to do the same thing. So that was another interesting moment. So yeah, I really, really love that in this story and it resonated a lot with me. What are other thoughts you have about this main character of yours? Is, is she a reflection of your experience or a reflection of your kids? Some combination? Yeah, some combination. I'm My daughter was, uh, her birthday is in November and so she went to Beehives when she was, that very first year as uh -huh. an 11 year old in one month. Uh-huh. So, yeah. Uh, it's just very jarring. And you know, everyone in conference is sharing experience about the beehives and deacons who are so excited to be there. Yeah. And she was more hesitant. Yeah. She's and, like, I didn't, I wasn't expecting this this soon. I thought I'd have more time. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Huh. 
Yeah, I remember when that changed. I was in a, I was in the Sunday school presidency in my ward, and we we'd already been trying to figure it right. There had been a lot to figure out from October conference, Mm -hmm. and then what was it, December or January that they said, "Oh wait, one other thing, right? We're we've already had to figure out all this two-hour church stuff." Also, eleven-year-olds. We forgot to tell you about eleven-year-olds. Uh huh. And we then had to very quickly make plans for, you know, what's the meeting we're going to have for transitioning 11-year-olds into the youth Sunday school class. Yeah. Um, and how that that's going to change the numbers in the youth Sunday school class. We thought we'd had the division of classes right, but, like, do we need to adjust yeah. it now? Um yeah, it basically yeah. the change basically doubled the number of young women in our ward. Okay, so yeah. it was a big change for ours as well. Yeah, yeah, and you know these changes are good, but they they do take some logistics. Um, yeah, and they take some emotional adjusting, as this story addresses. Yeah, um, I, my personality and personality of my family is very much the. I want to know what to expect. And when something changes, it shakes us yep. for a bit. Yeah. Yeah. And that's hard, especially in a time like this, where just worldwide, we're living in a time of constant change. And then religiously, as Latter-day Saints, right? Like we believe in ongoing revelation and thus in some amount of change, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that changes will come and that those changes will be divinely inspired. But that doesn't mean that they'll be easy. yes um and we sometimes can lean to what you were talking about from conference or from sacrament meetings of everyone just saying well we were so excited for this and it's such a good thing and we share the encouraging we're committed to this stories but that can make it kind of hard for anyone who's going through the emotional experience of saying wait i'm not quite there yet yeah i don't have this together right i i want to believe Maybe even I do believe that this is the right choice. But even if I believe it's the right choice, I wasn't ready for it. (laughs) Uh Um, And I still, where do I put this unprepared feeling? Um, Yeah. Which is one great thing that I think Mormon literature can do, right? Stories like this can help people. Just like at the end of your story, right? One of the things that helps her is finding someone else who's been where she's been Uh right we can help each other with stories like this that show maybe another side to our religion than what we necessarily show in a sacrament yeah that's always been important to me with my stories is showing the other side of the coin that Mm -hmm. it's not always bright happy all the time we don't always get the miracles that we pray for yeah and some stuff is just really hard yeah yeah but your stories aren't your stories are but they're not all about just the hard stuff either which is one other thing that i think is very fun um if we could actually i'll I'll come back to portal friends in a minute but i just want to switch for a second to uh your story the gift of tongues uh-huh. um which was in i think the 2016 blip blitz yes that's um, what i have written down and so the gift of tongues, um, I'll try to figure out how to discuss this without having too many spoilers. But the gift of tongues, I think, is fascinating as a story about miracles and about answers to prayer, where there is a miracle, but it's maybe not quite the miracle we expected as a reader. Uh-huh. Um, and yeah, it's just such a lovely story. So, yeah. Yeah, that one's probably, that one and Daughters of Ishmael are my two most popular stories. Okay. I've written for the Lit Blitz. Uh-huh. Man, I, I'm kind of surprised by that because uh, disability, death, or other circumstances, one that I just come back to over and over and over. Uh-huh. I yeah. think that story is hilarious. Um, yeah had other people uh say that that was another one that they really connected to yeah yeah really all of your stories right uh 
There, there is not, not a bad one among them. All of these stories will give you something wonderful, my listeners. So take the time. Um, but yeah, so uh, to turn back, um, well, I, I will just say, since we've been doing kind of like a listing through of the, the high points of, um, of all these stories, it would be a pity to not mention Kirillum Riders, which is this like epic adventure story. Um, I like, I want to see that action movie adaptation of that story. That would be so fun. Um, yeah, gotta get, gotta get someone to, to do the, the film rights for that one. <laughs> so, um, but back to Portal Friends, um, mm-hmm. This probably is a little bit unusual in Mormon fiction for this like very precise focus on a specific policy change. Mm, True. Right. It's got this kind of like bureaucratic minutia of Mormonism, but in this like very emotionally complex way. Um but I don't know how many stories there have been about like specific process of, um, you know, how, how does the end of primary work? I'd be interested in seeing that. I enjoyed it a lot because I like, my stories are tend to be about like, how does living and emotions kind of run through these different bureaucratic processes. Um, but one of the interesting things that comes with that is, uh, many, many, uh, stories in general. And I think this is especially a thing for fantasy fiction, um, and to some degree, a thing for Mormon fiction. It's definitely something that's talked about in, uh, in like highbrow literary realism. Is there like you should tell a story that like is somehow timeless. Like don't include details that will date your story too much. True. And I think you run against that in a absolutely beautiful way, right? This story is absolutely dated. There is a specific moment in time. This story refers to and relates to. And I think it can be understood and enjoyed outside of that. But, like, there's this really, really strong specificity um, to this moment. Yeah, Uh, from the classes I've taken, I have leaned more towards being specific uh in the characters I choose, the locations, and, um, and times just the specificity can ground someone more rather than something timeless that kind of like distant yeah Uh um and i i was talking with a friend recently about we were talking about um a poem um i'll i'll mention the poem for specificity's sake so the poem is uh september the first day of school by howard nemerov um it's one of my favorite poems i don't know if you've ever heard it but i'll i'll drop a link in the show notes for this episode as well for anyone who wants to read it um and it is a lovely poem but it is it's very specific right it's about the first day of school it's a father dropping his son off to start school um and thinking about that um but one of the things my friend said uh she said there really is a specificity here that is in some ways more universal than if this poem had just been generically about parenting. Right? Like tying it into this very specific emotional moment makes it somehow more relatable and more universalizable um, than if it didn't have those things that give it the nitty gritty specificity and detail. Yeah, I've heard that. I haven't read this poem specifically, but 
that is some of the line of thinking that I've heard from other writers mm -hmm. and things. It, it this could be true more in the genre fiction instead of literature fiction. Yeah. That the spe specificity is what will open the ma imagination and help people relate and make it feel real. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. Um. And I wonder about this again to kind of turn to our religious settings. I think sometimes we do, we, we, we talk a lot about uh, kind of generic situations and ideal situations. And this is one thing um, you really get at with the, with the short story Disability Death and Other Circumstances, which I really hope that listeners go and listen to because it's so delightful. Um, but, you know, we have this very important document, the Family Proclamation, um, which is kind of supposed to chart out like a a generalized ideal of what's the like rough framework for family relationships. But then like, how do you interrelate between that generalized framework and any nitty gritty specific situation? Um, and that's people where place where people run into a lot of challenges trying to figure out like, okay, but how does this apply to me? Right. Yeah. Um, because there's there's a line in the proclamation about like this can maybe adapted in other circumstances, but like which circumstances are the other ones? <laughs> yeah, that title is directly lifted from the proclamation. Yes. And I think yeah. that's actually the only reference to the proclamation in the story. Yes. Um, at least in that direct level. Um, mm -hmm. but yeah, and I always, yeah, it, it just is such, such a lovely little story that gets at this, like, okay, we have these generalized ideals, but like, we all live our life in specifics. <laughs> yeah. Everyone's circumstances are other circumstances. Um, so how do you get a general down to nitty gritty? And I think one way is to like see other people's nitty gritty circumstances. Yeah. Um, and this is I something agree. that the scriptures do for us. This is something that good literature can do. This is something that just like paying attention to other people in your ward can do. Um, is like give us a sense of like the gospel as it is lived in different specific circumstances. Yeah, that was one of the my favorite things about going to Sunday school at BYU was just realizing how the gospel was lived in different parts of the country. And mm -hmm. that some people, like I had released Time Seminary when I went to school in, in Oregon. However, oh. you know, other people had released Time when it was just their family yeah. doing seminary. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, I didn't realize that there was release time as far north and west as Oregon. Yeah, I think it was about, I, I think I would say like 10% maybe of our high school was LDS. And so we got okay. release time seminary. Nice. Yeah, it, it is interesting to see. I would like a map of like what places in the world have release time seminary. It would be an interesting way to look at like where are their big concentrations of members of the church. Yeah. Um, and how does that relate to different school systems? Because I, again, uh, as I mentioned, I grew up in Columbus, Ohio, and it was all early morning seminary there. Um, I think there were maybe eight members of the church in my high school at a given time on average. Um, no, probably a little bit more than that. Let me think. Um, within my grade, there were four of us. So, you know, multiply that by four and you end up with 16 in the whole school, in a school of roughly 2,000 students. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. But, yeah, so we're a little bit more thinly spread than 10%. Yeah. So, 
And then obviously you have, you know, Utah Corridor, where it can be as high as 70, 80%. Yeah. Um, higher in some smaller towns. Um, and then, you know, different patches of Idaho and Colorado and California. So, yeah. Yeah. I did, yeah. I've seen a couple maps that suggest, they say like, really, if you're thinking of like demographic regions of the United States, like the Mormon corridor is one of the key cultural regions, right? Just like the Midwest or this deep South where it's like shaped by a specific set of historical circumstances, right? Like Idaho, Nevada, Colorado, Arizona, there's this whole area around Utah that's also shaped by the historical circumstances of the pioneer trek. Uh-huh. So, yeah. But anyway, that's a little bit further afield. Let's get back to your experience as a Mormon writer. So you started writing fantasy stories in elementary school. When yep. did you first write a story with distinctly LDS elements? Um, I think probably my, that would have been my first attempt at the Lit Blitz, which okay. was a failed attempt before Curalom Riders. Uh-huh. Um, I actually think, if I remember right, that one was, did not have a fantasy element in it. But, uh, the Mormon Lit Blitz, so far, is the only thing I've really written with, uh, specific LDS characters or... Uh-huh. Uh, or things that would or things that with the Mormon uh, not necessarily values but the specific culture yeah. that we have yeah yeah. Um, so, yeah I, so the lit blitz has definitely stretched me in that way to think to how to combine these two elements that are very strong in my life but I just don't see them combined very often yeah so most of the stuff you write is uh, fantasy fiction of various kinds. Yes. Um, yeah, what what are some of your non-LDS uh, works, if right. readers are interested in looking at those? Um, my most recent one is a flash fiction that was published in on a website called The Arcanist, and it's about a mother who's dealt with infertility and she's going to the witch who sold her the fertility potion to talk about um some ramifications of huh. what's happened with it yeah interesting what are some others yeah, um, and my other flash fiction i have published is called the so that one was called Tattered Flower, and the other one I have is called The Legacy Left Behind. And that one is a time travel story um, where a woman at uh, notices that the new neighbor in town is the time traveler, and hmm. so she's very suspicious of, about him okay. and tries to figure out where he came from. Yeah. Interesting. I'll have to go and read the those as well uh, after this. Um, yeah, so to, to turn a little bit from what you have written, um, what's some of your favorite uh, either fantasy literature or Mormon literature or both to read? Obviously, you uh, seem pretty familiar with the C.S. Lewis canon yep. um, in this piece. And another Mormon writer of fantasy is Brandon Sanderson. I've read pretty much everything he's written. All right. And Cosmere. You're a Cosmere fan. Yes. Um, and Mary Robinette Kowal has been climbing in my estimation of that. Okay. I also enjoy Shannon Hale, another yeah. Mormon writer. 
Now, to Mary Robinette Kowal, she's the, she does the astronaut novels, right? Yes. Okay. The Lady yeah. Astronaut series. The Lady Astronaut, uh, those are fascinating. I read a couple of those uh, a couple of years ago. Yeah, I've read uh, some of the shorts that take place in that universe, but I've only read one of the novels that she's mm -hmm. out, got out so far. Yeah, and she's she's just a very interesting writer. I've seen her uh, at a couple conferences. She's come to LTUE, which is a Utah uh, regional science fiction conference, writing conference a couple times. Um, yeah, she's really cool. And then Shannon yeah. Hale. Yeah, Mary Robinette's fascinating to listen to. So is yeah. Shannon Hale. Yeah. What are what's one of your favorite Shannon Hale books? Uh, I really love Princess Academy and Goose Girl. Uh, one thing I liked about Goose Girl is that the protagonist is timid. And she's not the strong mm -hmm. female protagonist that so many other fantasies have. And yeah. I just really like that refreshing change. Yeah. yeah, she is very strong, but it takes her a while to gain confidence in her own strength. Right? Yes. And that's really interesting. And it's a different kind of strength than a very, yes. like, action hero strength. Yeah. Um, it's like a knowing her own values kind of strength. Mm -hmm. and I, so I really like Goose Girl as well. Um, yeah, Shannon Hale is also one who's got a really good range, right? She's written yeah. at a lot of different age levels. She's written a lot of different genres. She's written stuff from like very light and airy comedy to some very serious works. Yeah. Um, and my family loves the Princess in Black series. Yeah. And also the Squirrel Girl books that she's written. The Squirrel Girl books are very fun. Yeah. Those are based on one of the like most absurd, goofy, fun Marvel comics superheroes ever, who is a girl with all the powers of a squirrel. Yes, and she is unbeatable. Yes. Could even take down Thanos. Yeah, because, you know, squirrels, they have lots of powers. You haven't thought about it, probably. But some comics artists and Shannon and Dean Hale have thought about it a lot. So, and kind of an irrepressible cheerfulness is kind of the key to most depictions of that character. And Shannon and yeah. Dean get at it really well in their novels. Yes, they did. So, um, yeah, those are fun. Okay, who else? What's another favorite author? Uh, if we go short fiction, uh, one of my favorites is Naomi Kritzer. Okay. And she's a Jewish author, and mm -hmm. actually she wrote a pandemic story a few years ago called So Much Cooking. Huh. And that one was a delight to read. Okay, I have never I heard of her. More. Yeah, she's, uh, well, I think she's won the Hugo uh, for More Cat Pictures, Please, is another one of her stories. Okay. And so it yeah, looks she's... like So Much Cooking is available online, so I'll throw a link to that in the show notes as well. The, it, and one thing I just really like about her is that a lot of her fantasy stories and speculative stories are still very domestic. Like it's still very domestic conflicts, things going on, or people going about normal life with the mm -hmm. speculative element thrown in. With it. Yeah. Yeah, which that, uh, I've heard that as one explanation for like, what is the nature of magical realism as a genre? Is like you mm -hmm. have the fantastic elements, but everything is approached from this like, well, how do you just get a, on with daily life? With, you know, if this stuff is not really surprising to anyone. Yeah. It's just part of the world. Um, but I think there's, there's a little bit more going on in terms of magical realism as a genre, generally. 
Um, but yeah, I like I like that more domestic um, fantasy. I actually there's a great I don't know if you have read much Patricia C. Reedy. Um, oh yeah, um, Enchanted Forest yeah. Chronicles. Yeah, so she has a great one that's about a cooking competition. Um, I'm trying to remember the title. It's short fiction. Um, but it's about like an enchanted frying pan. And the princess that wins is named Annalisa. Oh. <laughs> yes, I remember that story. I've got the anthology with it upstairs. Okay, yep. Yeah, uh... The uh, Utensil Strength is the name of the story. Okay. Uh, the object is called the uh, Frying Pan of Doom. You know. But yeah, so that's another, that's one of my personal favorites. Yeah, that one was fun. Um, nice. Well, yeah, this has been a fun conversation. Um, now, I guess we can close here with how did you find the Lit Blitz? Because you've, you've been a Lit Blitz participant for a number of years now. What kind of drew you to that community? I believe it was one of my friends that heard about it, even from the very first year. And uh, we were both writers, and she okay. submitted. She said, I critiqued her story, and she asked me to submit and things, but it took me another year before I had something ready to submit. Mm -hmm. But then it didn't make the cut, but then Kirillam Writers the next year did. Okay. I'm glad you kept at it because Kirillam Writers is so wonderful. Mm -hmm. And so the rest have been so wonderful as well. Um, are there any favorites that you've had in the Lit Blitz by other authors through the years? Uh, that have really stuck with you or just anything general about uh the contest and how you have experienced it as a reader rather than a writer uh -huh. so i want to get her name right mm -hmm. um, i'm bad at remembering people's names i remember the titles more than people so let's see Okay. Mary Jane Rice's poems have just always been very emotional and things. I especially yeah. remember the one that she had about stillbirth. Yeah, uh, that one is so intense. That one's yeah, so that one's intense. Gutting. Yeah. Yeah, you were wanted elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, so she actually, she's interesting because uh, we say that Mary Jane is the queen of the Lit Blitz because she is the uh -huh. only person who has been a finalist in every single year. So... Yeah, and sometimes she's appeared more than once as yes. well. Yeah. So she has a strong record in the Lit Blitz. So yeah, she comes yeah. up on people's lists pretty often. Um, um, from this year, other than my story, I think my favorite was Airplanes That Crashed by Jared Forsythe. Oh, that's Just, such a fun one. It was. Yeah, I've been waiting to hear whether anyone has printed it off and used it as a coloring book, as a Sunday activity uh, mm -hmm. with their kids. So that's something I would like to see. And my kids have never been much for coloring, so I okay. haven't done that. Yeah, yeah. It de definitely depends on the audience. Very um, much so. So, yeah. But yeah, I enjoyed that one a lot as well. Um, yeah. And yeah, very, it's the first coloring book to ever appear in the Lit Blitz. So that was a historic moment. Um, yes. Yeah. And it's very thought-provoking, just the sparsity of it. 
Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, that one, that one stands out to me as well. It really has been such a fun contest over the years. Um, mm-hmm. I, I highly encourage, right? I, I'm guessing that most of the people who bother to listen to my podcast already like the Lit Blitz. Um, but if there's anyone listening who is not a fan and has not read through uh, past finalists, I, I strongly encourage anyone to give it a try for a few stories. There's no matter who you are, there's probably something you will like a lot in here because there's just such a wide range of things. Yeah. Um, from the very like serious and weighty to very light um, and from humor to drama to action and adventure to romance. Um, it's really all been in there at some point. Yeah. And if you don't like reading online, there's the anthology coming soon. It's true. Yeah, you can buy it in paper once we finish uh, getting the layout done and getting it uh, put up through a Kickstarter. So there will soon be a physical manifestation of all of the years of work that writers and editors have put in to this contest. I'm very excited for that as well. I've been able to be um, on the team helping work on that anthology, and that's been a lot of fun. Awesome. Um, we've gotten a very good response from all of the writers through the years. So that's been very fun to see. Yeah. Well, thank you again for joining me, Annalisa, um, and sharing your story. And then do you have any upcoming work that you would like to tell our readers about or any ideas for uh, future areas to explore? I am actually currently working on a sequel to Gift of Tongues. So Ooh. It is currently too long for the lit lits, but we'll see where it ends up. Okay. Well, very exciting. I can't wait to hear more about it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Correct. The current title is The Gift to Be Healed. Oh, wow. That's going to be interesting. Well, I can't, I, yeah, like I said, I can't wait to hear more about it. Um, so we'll end our episode here. Hey, all. Thanks for joining Annalisa and I to hear her story and to talk about it. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Um, there will be links to Annalisa's website and her stories as well as other works that we discussed. Uh, in the show notes. So be sure to look at those if you're interested. Um, and as always, all Lit Blitz stories can be found at lit.mormonartist.net. Uh, that is the online home of the Lit Blitz, lit.mormonartist.net. Thanks for listening. <laughs>